0: Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you very much for tuning in. Hope you had a break if you got one. I had a short break, so the weekly podcast wasn't weekly for a few weeks. It will be again now, starting from this one. Before I get going, a couple of announcements. First of all, the paperback of my book on Prime Ministers, uh, Reflections on Leadership from Harold Wilson to Theresa May, as it was in the hardback, is now from Harold Wilson to Boris Johnson. There's an additional chapter on Johnson, which made me update some of the other chapters too, because Johnson's rule, though not over yet, shines on considerable light on the other leaders as well in ways that I'm going to reflect actually in this podcast because it's a good way of setting up the autumn drama that is about to unfold. So anyway that's out on September the 3rd. I'm also doing a few live shows this month hopefully in a theatre. It was really interesting doing the live streams of rock and roll politics uh, which um, involved me sitting in front of a computer but in ways that felt very engaged because the audience asked brilliant questions some of it carried on on twitter afterwards the equivalent of meeting at the bar after those live shows and so that was a really good experience you felt you were somehow defeating the virus fleetingly by doing those but it's of course not the same as being in a theatre so hopefully I'll be at King's Place where also because obviously the audience is going to be very carefully socially distanced so there won't be as many as usual Um, so it will be streamed as as well and there will be a live stream from that show so people can tune in from anywhere around the globe and tickets are for both those the streaming or the live event are on the king's place website and that should be fun it'll be kind of like old times maybe Let's hope so. Then I'm doing the following day, which will be Saturday the 19th, going to the uh, Great Rope Tackle Arts Centre in Shoreham, wonderful arts centre. Uh, and hopefully that too will be up and running. And then the following Saturday, for the first time actually, I'm going to Greenwich Theatre to do rock and roll politics. So those of you south of the river who don't um, make it northwards to places like King's Place, please do come along there. That's Greenwich Theatre. So those are the announcements. And now let's uh, get going. Oh yeah, before, beforehand actually, there was one thing I wanted to say, which is that having done these kind of streams from my room, somewhat kind of surreal events, but very satisfying events, I thought it might be good to give you an email, you listeners of the podcast, to contact me with any questions or points arising from the podcast and I've got an email address where you can do this and I'll repeat it a couple of times. Now obviously you'll be out jogging while you're listening to this so you won't be able to make a note of the email but obviously you can come back with a pen, cup of coffee and make a note of the email. It's steverick1414 at icloud.com And so if you've got any questions to raise for next week's podcast or any points arising from this week's podcast where you agree, disagree, think I've gone bonkers, please email. And therefore we can begin the sort of dialogue we had during the live streaming events at the height of the lockdown or lockdown number one, depending on what happens. So please do get in touch. That's Steve rick 14 at iCloud.com. And if you're out jogging at the moment or doing press-ups while you're listening for inspiration and energy and dynamism, that email address was read out about four minutes, 20 seconds into the podcast. What's been so interesting, even over August, is how the pattern of politics persisted. Uh, it rarely changes when patterns are in place, and the pattern of this government, unclear of direction, and the panic-stricken U-turns continued in August in a way more vividly than before. Remember, we had them before on issues such as Marcus Rashford's campaign on free dinners and several others, the payments that uh, foreign NHS workers were expected to make were uh, rightly and suddenly dropped having been clearly put in place and Boris Johnson at Prime Minister's question saying he had thought about it and decided they should make these payments they were then dropped and so on. But in August it became very vivid with the exams and the colossal crash of a U-turn. And by the way, I fully accept what is now the fashionable revisionist theory that U-turns can be a sign of grown-up politics, that voters appreciate the fact that governments listen and respond and change, rather than be defiant and lacking all capacity for expediency. All that is true. But at the same time, the exam U-turn was a very interesting model. Because the government had clear warning, just as they did incidentally with the likely impact of COVID in the UK in uh, February and March. They had a clear warning of what was likely to happen from Scotland, but also from well before that. They knew the date when the exams were going to be announced. They knew the form in which marks were going to be made. And I think any of the other prime ministers I write about in this book would have sat down with their senior advisors and education ministers and gone through every permutation. If you take, for example, Blair and Brown, but on this I don't think they were exceptional. They used to explore every eventuality with an almost neurotic precision. Sometimes they went to the other extreme where they were kind of almost paralysed with fear to do anything because they had contemplated all the possible consequences of what they might do. But Blair was good at this. He would sit there with Alistair Campbell and others and say, right, guys, if we do this, what will happen? And and it would be partly, you know, what will the media do? And he was too obsessed with that. But it would also be, what would the Tories say? How will it play out in parts of the electorate that he wanted to reassure and woo? Uh, What would happen in terms of, say, its impact on the economy or whatever? They would absolutely analyse to death any policy implication especially one that can be seen careering towards them like the exam results being announced uh, in August. Now clearly Johnson does not run his number 10 like that so any vaguely normal prime minister would have sat down with his education secretary and his advisers, and first of all, they'll have discussed the course they are taking. So, you know, Johnson would have said, OK, Gov and Cummings, emphatic... Uh, grade inflation is is a disaster so we're going to avoid grade inflation by taking this particular course with Ofqual and then they a fine okay so what happens if uh, loads of people especially in our new constituencies newly won from Labour and with our levelling up agenda they all start complaining what's our line are we 100% sure this uh, off-qual set of criteria for, in effect, predicting grades is wholly robust? So if the BBC or some newspaper gets a kid expecting 8A stars and ends up with 8Ds from an old Labour constituency that is now Tory, we can say this is absolutely 100% robust and they go through those circumstances and then they will can contemplate well hold on a minute if we're not wholly sure and we now know that gavin williams at least knew a couple of weeks beforehand about the fragilities of the off-qual approach uh, you then say are we sure we should be going out on the airwaves every day saying there will be no U-turn, we are sticking with this, this is in the best interests of all the pupils, etc. And then they got another warning with Scotland and that crashing U-turn, which gave them the space to say, OK, we've learnt from Scotland and we are reconsidering too. Did Johnson have that meeting with Williamson after the Scottish debacle and say, hold on a second, are we not heading precisely in the same direction as Scotland? If not, why not? Why are you so sure? I know, again, Cummings and Gove are telling you to hold the course because they are dead against grade inflation, but are we sure we're not heading for a Scottish situation? instead on they go uh, declaring post the scottish drama that there would be no u-turn until there was one now i know by the time of the u-turn johnson was up in his scottish hideaway uh, with a little tent in the garden to show that he was camping next to a house that i'm sure went largely unused but this again was a foreseeable crisis not one that suddenly erupted which no one could have predicted but I just don't think it's in Johnson's character nor those around him to think in those terms and that's what's so illuminating when you compare it with previous prime ministers of whatever ideological inclination or expedient characters or whatever they did sit there and think, what about X, Y, and Z? I think Thatcher, towards the end, lost that art, but at the beginning, she could be quite cautious. And she was aware that there were many internal critics in her party, uh, that Labour could still win elections. Uh, it was only when it was clear that Labour couldn't win elections when they split in 81 that she dared to get rid of some of the wets and then start taking risks. And it was only after her third election win that she stopped reflecting on consequences with the poll tax, where anyone with any political antennae uh, would have thought, hold on a second, if we do this, what will happen if the bills are astronomical, especially in Tory-supporting areas, etc. And she didn't do it. But that was right at the end where she was exhausted and intoxicated by election victories. Um, Johnson's doing this at the beginning, similarly with other weird kind of announcements like the peerage for Evgeny Lebedev, especially when sort of links with Russia are highly sensitive and uh, Lebedev gets this peerage and uh, I, I used to see him every now and again. When I was at the Independent, I used to have coffee with him, and I liked him. He's a likable person, politically incredibly naive, and now clearly intoxicated by celebrity. I've seen interviews where he speaks of his friend Boris, and but uh, Boris doesn't do friendships. Uh, for him, it would have been a calculation about keeping the standard on board and all the other things that Lebedev might bring him. But anyway, he's delivered for Lebedev too, but, I mean, most prime ministers, I think, would not risk such kind of so obviously contentious appointments so early on in their career. Harold Wilson, famously, his resignation honours list, the so-called lavender list, was punctuated with dodgy individuals. But that was at the end, that was his resignation list, and he was going. Johnson, in theory, wants to roll over us for years to come, and yet uh, makes these provocative announcements with an apparent indifference to uh, what anyone might feel about them and it is uh, who knows what the longer term consequences of such approach will be what I know for sure is it's really different I mean all the other prime ministers I've written about were unique they none of them were kind of had too many common characteristics but they all had in their different ways, a deep sense of responsibility. Some were almost burdened by that sense of responsibility. And they, on the whole, with varying degrees of forensic determination, were very across policy details and the implications of those policies. But here we are on the edge of another Brexit deadline we still don't know where johnson stands on what or where he would move to get a deal or whether he's willing to go for no deal with consequences which again you wonder whether he has thought through clearly enough he really is a a one-off and i think wholly ill-equipped really to meet the particular challenges I think you could measure objectively the um, scale of Johnson's challenges, some of them self-inflicted, like Brexit, are bigger than any of those faced by other prime ministers, and they faced hellish challenges. You know, the miners' strikes of the 70s, the three-day week that resulted from that, the winter of discontent in 78 that brought down the Callaghan government, Thatcher, again, kind of self-inflicted to some extent, but record levels of unemployment. The Falklands War, Gordon Brown financial crash, Blair having to decide whether to back America over Iraq. These were all nightmares. But Johnson, the combination this autumn of COVID, uh, which he has handled so poorly so far, Brexit, uh, where through his own machismo, time is running out, the EU would have happily given an extension. And the economic consequences of both those, Covid and Brexit, I mean these are huge challenges and he is ill-equipped to meet them. Some have said why aren't Labour miles ahead in the polls given the own goals uh, that the government has scored uh, over the summer and before the summer. And I think Actually, Starmer should feel reasonably pleased with uh, the way things are going so far. The reason I say that is it shouldn't be forgotten. It seems like ancient history now. But in December, in that election, a whole range of voters decided for the first time in their lives to vote Conservative. And the political map really was redrawn. In the same way, not on the same scale, but in quite a big way as in 1997, where traditional Tory areas, you looked at the kind of map when they put it up on the television screen, they had all gone red. And voters had made a very big call that they were not going to vote Conservative, they were going to vote for Blair and this Labour Party. And when you make that kind of leap, you certainly want to give your choice some space. Uh, Some benefit of the doubt. And so, in a whole range of areas in England, those voters who gave Johnson that big majority, it's over 80, will give him the benefit of the doubt. They don't want to question their own judgment. Voters are really bad at that. It's never the voters' fault. And so, they will not leap back to Labour, or move to Labour for the first time, very speedily. So after 1997, uh, Labour were ahead in the polls, on the whole, for the next eight years. And, you know, so in 2001 Labour won, 2005 Labour won, and everyone assumed they were going to win as well, including senior Conservatives, knew they were going to lose. So it's quite a big thing to do when an electoral map has been reconfigured quite dramatically, as it was in December, to then restore a lead for your party. So given that Starmer's personal ratings are higher than Johnson's and that some polls put Labour neck and neck, uh, that's quite a quick turnaround. He's obviously, Starmer, facing massive challenges to come. But rather than thinking, oh yeah, maybe he should be doing better and why isn't Labour ahead? The more pertinent question is, why are the Conservatives not miles ahead still, as Labour was after ninety-seven, when a previous reconfiguration of the political map had taken place? So I think he's doing well, and it was interesting at Prime Minister's questions on Wednesday, I don't know how many of you managed to see it, but I don't think these kind of exchanges are as insignificant as some it's quite fashionable to say well no one watches it it's no doubt broadly true but somehow they kind of resonate and permeate through those exchanges johnson is never normally scrutinized it's a form of genius from him that he's managed to get to the top without really kind of intensive scrutiny at any point either from within his party or on the media. And so Starmer has used these six questions at PMQs to do something which is almost unique, which is to challenge. And some of the questions he poses are not just, oh, you know, that was very clever. Oh, oh Starmer, oh, he's been very forensic. Yeah, that's not bad. They're wholly pertinent. So, for example, on Wednesday, Starmer asked Johnson when he knew that the criteria that Ofqual were using in doling out the exam grades were going to be unreliable. We know Williamson knew. Did Johnson know at the same time? If so, why didn't he do something? And if he didn't know, why not? It again goes back to why he didn't turn up for those vital COBRA meetings when it was clear that the pandemic was raging across Europe and was bound to hit the UK it will be seen that it had already hit the UK. And, of course, he didn't answer, but he didn't answer in a way that was utterly transparent, started blustering about getting schools back and whether Starmer had backed an IRA sympathiser and that he was a Remainer and all these things that his advisers had told him to attack Starmer over. Uh, But I think it kind of captures a moment really of a prime minister desperately out of his depth and a leader of the opposition still learning many of the arts and by no means assured of long-term success just look at scotland and where labor is there to realize the scale of the challenge but a labor leader who in relying on the skills he already had before he became a politician that of the interrogator making some headway and in making headway you acquire greater confidence it's so interesting in politics like in sport confidence feeds on itself and insecurity also feeds on itself and you start making more mistakes and become more insecure this has been the fate of several leaders of the opposition Tory and Labour but it seems to me that Starmer certainly is not in that position and as for Johnson. People say, you know, there's rumours that he's still ill and he's gonna, you know, is someone told someone who told the Times diary that he's gonna pull out in six months' time. I think all of that's a red herring. I've no idea about uh, the health of Johnson, whether he's a hundred percent or fifty percent post getting the virus. I suspect that the Johnson we see is the Johnson we would have got if he was a hundred percent and had never had the virus. This is the campaigning character who regards politics in some ways as a branch of show business, in other ways as a great game played from Eton onwards, with the capacity, I think, for seriousness at times and self-awareness at times, as well as self-absorption, but never for detail and how policy implementation must relate to the values of a party and must be communicated more widely to the broader electorate it, it kind of the, there has been no solidity and of course it's really difficult with the pandemic and I completely sympathize with the daunting impossibility at times of kind of the contradictory objectives of keeping everyone well and, and yet reviving the economy but I think all the other prime ministers I write about in that book would have risen to the task more effectively, some far more effectively. Who would have done well? It's a ridiculous game to play. I think Blair and Brown would have done really well with that neurotic planning ahead and contemplating all eventualities. May would have been more assiduous. Cameron and Osborne together, I think, would have been more alert. Um, Cameron was not a great one for policy detail, but I think they would have responded okay. Wilson was a great master of policy detail at his peak and I think would have been more effective. So the UK has a Prime Minister ill-equipped for this. Uh, Whether he lasts the course or not, there's no point predicting, frankly. I'm sure he has every intention of doing so. And with that majority, which he secured at the last election, has every right to try but I think he's going to find it really tough. One of the things I've been reading during the uh, summer break has been the Diaries of Woodrow Wyatt. I really recommend them. There's three volumes. I've read all three. I think I've read every page. I must be the only person in the Western world who has ever read them in full. But they are fascinating on many levels. Wyatt was a columnist in the 80s and 90s. He was known as the Voice of Reason at the News of the World, an interesting title. Uh, for someone who was wholly devoted to first Margaret Thatcher and then very conveniently John Major. And he used to speak to them once or twice a week. And uh, the calls, some people, I read the reviews of the diaries and some argued that he exaggerated his centrality. Well, he didn't make up these calls. He was on the phone to them or they to him uh, once or twice a week. And what was interesting about Thatcher was in confiding to Wyatt she conveyed how down she was a lot of the time, worried about colleagues conspiring against her long before her fall, worried about the a column or the views of a newspaper. She was very worked up about the stance of the independent in its early formidable phase when she was prime minister, worried about the impact on her people of certain economic policies, worried about what Nigel Lawson was up to. Quite a lot of it justified, by the way, but the mood music was one of doubt and insecurity. And it reminded me when I wrote that book how most of the time prime ministers are miserable. Thatcher enjoyed herself far more than most of them because she had a doting press and huge landslide majorities. But she was she was down a lot of the time. And although Johnson is very different to all these other modern prime ministers I write about in the book, I think there will be one thing that links him with them, and that is he'll start to feel miserable soon. Some say he's already not enjoying it. I've no idea. But I think pretty soon he will feel the burdens of it the anger frustration paranoia isolation that all the others in different ways felt once they had acquired the crown when they get the crown they think they're special with every justification because most people ache for it most of their peer group and don't get it they have become prime ministers and they think they're special until things start to go wrong and then they are miserable and feel the opposite of special. And when he starts to feel that, or if he has, it will be interesting to see how he adapts and responds. It's not as glamorous as I think he thought it would be. Anyway, God, blimey, we've done about half an hour. Those of you listening and running will have almost finished your 5K, in some cases finished your 5K. Those of you doing press-ups, you must have done about 300. Anyway, thank you very much for listening. Just a reminder again, the paperback is out this week. Prime Minister's from uh, Harold Wilson, to Boris Johnson Reflections on Leadership and the live shows are at King's Place on Friday September the 18th, the Rope Tackle Arts Centre on the 19th and then the following Saturday at Greenwich Theatre. I think that will be Saturday the twenty fifth, twenty-sixth. You know what you know what I mean, that kind of time. Is definitely the Saturday. And tickets are available at those theatres websites. Thanks so much for listening. Great to be back, as they say. It's going to be an autumn of Shakespearean drama and some deadly serious issues around COVID, the economy and Brexit. And we will delve deep. And don't forget, do email and we can have more of an exchange in these podcasts too. Thanks a lot. See you next week.